Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas, and we are doing Life Over Coffee. I have a, a big idea that I want to introduce to you. I trust it will be beneficial for you, also for your family and friends. And so I'm titling this talk, Here It Is, and so listen carefully, and then I will explain it, and then I want to get into the meat of it in just a moment. But the big idea that I want to communicate to you is it's the wisdom of introducing sin to our families, the wisdom of in introducing sin to our family and also to our friends. That's the big idea that I want to talk about it. So let me introduce this and then we'll jump into the meat of it. Thank you so much for joining me. We're doing Life Over Coffee. One of the kindest things that we can do is introduce a biblical sin plan. Now, that's a, a, a label that I trust will uh, stick in your mind and it will resonate with you because this is something that's so important in our families, as I'm going to explain as I move along. But it's one of the kindest things that we can do is introduce a biblical sin plan to our families so that they can enjoy the full benefits of the gospel. Now, if we do this, we will begin to release an entire generation of people, our families, our children, their children too. We will release them because they will not only sin, but they will be able to remove the sin quickly because they have a robust sin plan. And not only will they sin and remove the sin quickly, but it will eliminate the lingering effects of sin. And many of us have experienced the lingering effects of sin through our families, our parents who have gone before us as they have tried to, to hide the obvious in plain sight while affecting us generationally. And what I mean by that, our, our, our parents sin and they don't work out their sin biblically and it has an adverse shaping influence on us and then it affects us generationally and then we come into our marriages and we don't have a biblical sin plan. And so when we sin, which we most surely will do, we have done and because we do not know how to eliminate the sin biblically, it affects them too. And so that is something that happened to so many of us. Now, what we want to do is we want to introduce a robust sin plan to our families. You see, we are ashamed about the sin that we commit, but we are not ashamed of the gospel. And that's what I mean by a robust sin plan. It's not just the things that we do wrong, but we have a cleanup detail. That cleanup detail started uh, at the cross on Golgotha's Hill, and the Spirit of God came into us and regenerated us, and now we are part of the cleanup detail. And so as we sin, we can clean it up. And, and not only are we free from the sin that encumbers us, but yet we, we, we now release our children, and we give them a model. We give them a presentation. We give them a way to respond to their own sin. And so instead of being affected adversely, we begin to affect them positively, and then they begin to, uh, to uh, affect those whom they marry and the children that they have. And so I titled this, The Wisdom of Introducing Sin to Our Families. Now, 
I've teased that out, and what I'm saying is we want to introduce a robust sin plan, a biblical sin plan. And if we introduce a robust biblical sin plan to our families, then part of that sin plan will be the elimination of sin through the power of the gospel. And that is a beautiful thing. Let me share the adverse side effects of this by bringing my friends Bill and Mabel uh, center stage because they always have a story to tell. There's always something wrong, but because there is a gospel, there is something right too. And so let's start with the negative and then we will get into some excellent biblical solutions for Bill and Mabel. Now, let's take Mabel first. She never saw her parents argue. And I've heard this many times in counseling, like, my parents never fought. Uh, my, my parents uh, never argued in front of us. It's like they never sinned. And this is what Mabel was saying. She said she never saw her parents argue. Well, if she never saw them argue, then she never saw them confess sins. And if she never saw them confess sins, then she never saw them pursue forgiveness. Mabel had no understanding of biblical repentance. Her parents were good Christian people, but sin was something that they never talked about openly. And this is what I mean by affecting generationally. You see, Mabel is a second-generation Christian who just happens to be married to a second-generation Christian, Biff. Now, Biff's family was reared differently from Mabel's family. I mean, the similarity was that he, he never saw his parents confess their sins. He never saw his parents pursue forgiveness. He never saw his parents walk out repentance. Now, that was the similarity. But what he saw that was different from Mabel, he saw his parents argue and fight all the time. And so though Biff and Mabel came from radically different backgrounds, neither one of them knew how to argue well or reconcile biblically. They did not know how to work through their sin episodes, those episodic moments of sin, plus the patterns of sin that they brought into their marriage, their uh, former manner of life, their lifelong shaping influences that have formed patterns in their lives. And so whether it was an episodic sin event or patterns that they brought into their life, they didn't know how to work through them because nobody modeled a biblical sin plan. Nobody discussed sin openly and transparently, and nobody taught biblical repentance to these two respective families. For Mabel, when she was a teen, she, she always thought that she was a failure because she could not live as righteously as her parents, and I'm putting that in air quotes because obviously that is not true. She assumed I mean, kind of tacitly, I mean, she knew, but she assumed that they never sinned, even though it was obvious. But sometimes it's almost like a passive perverse gaslighting where you know that they are sinning, but yet it's never discussed. And so you just, you go asleep at the wheel and just assume that they never sin. But Mabel did sin as a child and as a teenager, and she sinned a lot. But she could never discuss her mistakes with her parents. She was partially afraid to bring up what was wrong with her. And when she was not scared to bring it up, she didn't know how to talk about what was wrong inside of her. 
because it was never a talking point with her family. And so Mabel, in her marriage, she oscillated back and forth between deep introspection for her sin, there is something wrong with me, and unforgiveness toward Biff, who was sinning mightily, whether episodically or through patterns. And so there were some wrong attitudes that began to take formation in Mabel's mind, and it was frustrating her, and obviously it was frustrating frustrating Biff. For example, she would tell Biff, my daddy never got angry, which infuriated Biff because he felt like her parents were hypocrites. He's looking at this and saying, wait a minute, this fails the eye test. There is something wrong with your parents. And when you say your daddy never got angry, uh, there's more to that statement than what you are telling me. And so she held Biff to an unreasonable and self-righteous standard that looked like her daddy, even though in her heart heart of hearts she knew that that was not true. The fact he did not know how to repent and the fact that he did not know how to reconcile with his wife, now that didn't help matters either. And so you have a wife who is judging him based on comparing him to her dad, who never sinned, though that was not true. And so he's being held to a self-righteous standard. And then you have him who, who has no biblical sin plan either. And so he doesn't know how to sin or doesn't know how to reconcile. And so at the end of the day, neither set of parents did them any favors. Biff and Mabel were ill-equipped for marriage. Now, they essentially had two options. Never sin. That's an option. Well, that's actually not an option for a Christian. That was kind of the path her parents took, never sin. Now, the truth is they sinned a lot, but they just never talked about it. And so Biff and Mabel have two options. They can never sin, which is not an option, or... They can learn how to respond to sin when it happens. You see, Biff nor Mabel had any sin categories. Mabel's parents ignored or rationalized or justified, or occasionally they would say that they were sorry for what they did in nonspecific ways. And then Biff's parents, well, they were not as civil. They yelled and screamed a lot. Now, let me give you full disclosure here. The two people that I'm describing in Biff and Mabel are actually Ricky and Lucy. It's me and my wife, Lucia. She was reared in a home that they really didn't discuss sin. They didn't talk about sin. And so they just went to sleep at the wheel and pretended that everything was okay. And when I came into their marriage, into their family, it's like, wow, this is so hypocritical. But then my family, on the other hand, who did not have a biblical sin plan by no, uh, by no stretch of the imagination, well, the way that we did it, we, we talked about things, but we did it in a profane and hurtful way. It was like hurtful daggers that were tossed around the room. And so when I suggested to Biff and Mabel a comprehensive view of sin, which meant sin categories, both of them said at the same time, we have no sin categories. Sin is unclear to us. We have zero understanding of what you're saying. 
uh, to help each other through even the minor problems that we encounter. I mean, we un understand the big stuff like adultery and divorce and, and drugs, but that's not where we live. And so when Mabel was a child, she thought her dad was often angry by the harsh tones in which he spoke to her mom, but he never owned his sin. Her dad would laugh it off. He'd make some snide comment, and he would just walk away. He always justified the way that he talked to her, and Mabel and her mom would excuse his sin, too, and they would say, that's dad. Biff and Mabel's thinking about sin eventually obliterated any hope of having proper sin categories. What went on behind closed doors in her parents' home was in full view in Biff and Mabel's home. They were not hiding it. They were sinning episodically, and there were many patterns of sin that they collectively brought into their autonomous domestic empire. And they could not act like, Biff, uh, act like Mabel's parents, where they never talked about it. And they knew they couldn't behave like Biff's parents, where they were very uncivil, tossing grenades about the room. But Mabel had no idea how to live with such a blatant fellow sinner as Biff. On the other hand, Biff knew how to live with another sinner. He, he, he had seen sin in the raw all his life. The problem with how he lived with a fellow sinner is that he employed a fight-fire-with-fire approach. And that is a dastardly destructive effect on their new autonomous domestic empire. And so Mabel's plan was similar to her parents, just a very passive, non-confrontational plan where you ignored problems even though it's impossible to ignore. Biff's plan was completely antithetical to that. It was a fight fire with fire approach. And so it was combustion happening in their covenant and they were frustrated and in counseling. The truth was that Biff's sin categories were not biblical. I mean, things like forgiveness and, and repentance were idealistic religious jargon that people talked about on Sundays. And so since neither of them had a correct view of sin, neither one of them had any redemptive categories to remedy their conflict. And so when Biff and Mabel came for counseling, I suggested that they must not only learn sin categories, but they would need to begin teaching their children a more comprehensive view of sin. Because they didn't have the luxury of learning how uh, to fix themselves, and then later on they would learn how to to fix their children. No, their kids were already 12 and 10 and 7 years of age. They couldn't wait. They needed an immediate and effective course correction in their home regarding how they sinned and responded to each other. They needed to multitask, develop their own biblical sin plan, which obviously includes sin, but a redemptive solution. And then at the same time, teach these things to their children because they are in process with children who are becoming young adults. Being saved does not remove the possibility of sin in our lives. Being saved does release us from the eternal guilt from the Father. It securely establishes us into the family of God. 
the body of Christ. But we can't memory whole sin because it won't go away until the return of our risen Lord. But once you become or once you enter into the family of God, there will be sin and there must be a plan of attack. And so Mabel brought her plan in, which was modeling her parents' plan, which is no plan at all, a civil, non-confrontive plan that ignored sin. Imagine ignoring cancer for decades. It just won't work. And then Biff came in modeling basically what his parents did, the grenade-tossing plan, and that was the combustion in the covenant. Christians call what I'm discussing, as far as the solution is concerned, we call the solution progressive sanctification. Biff and Mabel had two options before them. They could continue and pretend that their sin did not exist or combust, as they have been doing, or they could choose to deal with the doctrine of sin the way that all Christians should. And so my counsel in situations like this has always been, state the obvious. Corruption is evident in our lives, and it is unwise to sugarcoat it, ignore it, cut the corners off of it so it's, it's more palatable. Sin will not respond to you in such a timid, cooperative fashion. Sin takes prisoners capturing any believer. And you and I, we will lose the battle if we do not fight against it with biblical aggression. A dad and mom can't parent their children without sinning. Though they are free from sin in a justification sense, God will not hold you guilty for freedom. He has called us. He has set us to be free. But sin still yet is alive and active in our lives And it's in our homes from a sanctification sense, a reality that should not discourage us because we have the power of Christ resident in us. A husband, a wife, a child cannot live with each other without sinning publicly or privately. The entire family must be on board with how they work through their transgressions. The home is a laboratory where trial and error, pass and fail, are typical, though Christians have an answer. We have hope. Sin and failure are not tragic ends for us, but the victorious beginning of a greater awareness of God and a deeper affection for each other. We can, we can look to a, a nondescript hill and see the defeat of sin. And then when Christ came out of the tomb, we see the obliteration of sin on a whole other otherworldly level. Only the unregenerate should be hiding the sin in their lives. They are the ones who have no hope. They are the ones who have no victory. Do you think it's odd for Christians to hide or deny their sins? I mean, that's like a strong man saying he has no strength. I want our children to know that, that, our, that I sin. I want them to know the truth about me, though I can't hide it. I mean, the truth is they do know I sin. 
But I have to be okay with this, biblically okay. I want them to know who I am as much as appropriate and depending on their ages and their biblical maturity, of course, each child is different. But I want them to also to see the power of the gospel in my life. More importantly, I want them to see how I work through my sin against my God, against my wife, against each one of them. I mean, I might as well want this because, as I was saying, I can't hide the crippling effects of sin from them. They live with me. They know me. To blush or to ignore the truth about who I am, it mocks the death of Christ. We need to be honest. We need to be real. We need to be transparent. We need to be humble. Failing is not the end. We have Jesus. We can show our children, we can show our friends the other side, the side where the grace of God is resident in us. A family with a gospel-centered view of sin is experiencing something that never crosses the mind of an unregenerate soul. Once you tap into the grace of God at this level, you open yourself up to some of the more unique and secret places that God holds out to the humble. If I am proud, the sign says, I oppose you. In James 4, 6, God is a warring army against the proud. But if I am humble, the sign says, I give you empowering favor. The irony is that we cannot experience this kind of grace apart from sin. <laughs> That's the irony. It is sin that ushers us into the door, into the space of grace. Because of sin, we can receive these extraordinary, empowering riches from the hand of our merciful Father. Without sin, there would be no grace in the context of what I'm talking about. Let me illustrate. We live next to a hospital. I can almost look through a window here. Uh, the trees are full of leaves at this time of the year. But in the wintertime, I can look through this window to my left, and I can see the hospital. We are that close to the hospital. Our children have never been to that hospital for medical care. They have passed by that hospital hundreds of times, probably thousands of times, because there's no, word, there's no way to get anywhere from here without going by the hospital. But they've never benefited from what can happen in that facility. Why? They have never needed what our hospital offers. They have to be sick to enjoy the benefits of the hospital. Jesus said in Mark 2.17 that he came for the sick. We have to be sick to experience grace. And so I trust that, that our children won't be like Mabel's parents, that they won't ignore or blame or rationalize or justify their sickness away when it comes. My hope is that they will eagerly run to this beautiful means of grace. And if you're sick run to help. It makes sense, right? I want to share with you a short list of benefits 
to any Christian willing to let others know that they are sick, appropriately letting the right people know, of course, that they are sick. What I mean by sick is that sin is present in them. And so I want to share with you a list of statements. There's 10 of them, and these are some of the benefits that come to us by letting the appropriate people know appropriately that sin is present in us. Now, you can begin each one of these statements with, the gospel-centered sinner is, okay? The gospel-centered sinner, the gospel-centered sinner is, one, applying the gospel to sin. Two, learning how to confess sin, becoming a biblical habit learning how to confess sin. You're applying the gospel to sin. You're learning how to confess sin. You're enjoying the benefits of being forgiven by God and forgiven by others. That's number three. Number four, you're experiencing the gift of humility. Number five, you're living in God's grace, which the Father bestows on the humble. You remember the sign says, empowering favor to the humble. That's number five. Number six, the gospel-centered sinner is benefiting from reconciliation and restoration with others. Number seven, the gospel-centered sinner is teaching their children how to live in the good and the power of the gospel. Number eight, they are modeling a way of escape that their children can emulate all of their lives. What a gift to give to your children. Think about the gifts that Mabel and Biff's parents gave to them. Mabel's parents gave her a, an overt, hiding, lack of acknowledgement of any sin in their lives. That is a bad gift. And then Biff's parents gave him a volatile gift when things went wrong in the home, just launch a grenade across the room. The gospel-centered sinner, number eight, is modeling a way of escape that their children can emulate all their lives. Number nine. A gospel-centered sinner is seen clearly through a biblical lens rather than a self-righteous one. And then number 10, they're being honest, transparent, vulnerable, and authentic. This list that you could add to is just 10 benefits of a gospel-centered sinner. It's impressive. And it's for any believer, for you, for me. I talk to parents regularly who are doing these things. They are actually actively doing these things, and it's an encouragement to hear their stories of grace regarding God's faithfulness to them, to their friends, to their families. Of course, you can probably surmise that the opposite is always also true. If you don't introduce your family to a comprehensive view of sin, which includes the doctrine of salvation and redemption, and repentance as well. Well, if you don't introduce your family to that, then imagine the many adverse side effects that really looks a lot different from the previous list that I just gave you. I want to share with you, not as extensive, but six things that will come to any person who doesn't have a comprehensive sin plan that includes redemption and restoration when sin happens. Here, here's some of the adverse side effects. Number one, insecurity. When your children see your sin, but you don't walk them through your sin, they will have an uneasy feeling. 
Every, they will know that everything is not okay in the home. They will intuit that something's wrong. They may not have words for it. They may not be able to articulate it. But like Mabel, when she sprung up into her teenage years, there was a lot of soul noise in her life because fussy parents make insecure kids while motivating them to look for other forms of security as they grow older. Mabel was very insecure because at some level of her soul, she knew that things were not right in her parents' lives. And so one of the adverse effects is insecurity. Number two, anger. As they become older, they may walk away from God because they may interpret your Christianity as just a method to keep the children out of trouble. But it has no real impact on their lives. They may overtly or covertly resent you. And so anger will begin to emanate from their hearts and out their mouths and through their attitudes. Because they, they, they may perceive your Christianity as just a, a method of sanctification for the children. It's, it's kind of like using the church to keep your children out of jail. And they resent that. Anger, number two. If you don't have a comprehensive sin plan, then an adverse side effect number three could be dishonesty. Your children may choose to model you. They may, they may begin to live that lie. By not owning your sin, you're essentially saying that evil does not exist or it does not matter. It does exist, and it does matter. Adverse effect number four, self-righteousness. They will not have the maturity to work through relational conflict. When sin happens, they may choose the self-righteous path of justifying or blaming their sin instead of owning it and repenting of their sin. They have this elevated approach of self-righteousness and not owning that sin down there, blaming that sin on other people. Number five, licentiousness. When a person cannot gain victory over sin, the temptation is to sin more out of frustration, as a reaction. It is a frustrating, unsatisfying cycle. If corruption is not exposed and discussed and the family is not walking out repentance, you can guarantee more sin. Sin begets sin. And so adverse effect number five is licentiousness. And then finally, number six, disqualification. Your children may not only resent you, but not listen to your counsel, even when you are right about what you're saying. A lack of being honest about yourself, or me, a lack of being honest about myself, will influence their perspective about me, which could functionally disqualify me as a parent. Number six, disqualification. I've titled this talk, The Wisdom of Induce in Introducing Sin to Our Families. You may want to stretch it out a little bit and say the wisdom of in introducing a comprehensive sin plan to our families that incorporates redemption and restoration. The doctrine of sin, the doctrine of soteriology, salvation, the doctrine of sanctification. I want to wrap up by just asking a, a, a few questions, but let me preface the questions by stating this. The death of Christ on the cross loudly proclaims that we are sinners. There's no point of him dying if, if we were not sinners. And so the cross declares that we are sinners. In short, we stink to the core. It's called total depravity. 
No Christian should seek to hide this fact. To deny sin is to deny the reason the gospel came. It's to deny the cross. I said earlier, it's mocking Christ. But sadly, our shame about what is wrong with us is part of the complexity of evil. Sin makes us ashamed of ourselves, which it should. But we ought, what we ought to do instead of ignoring what is wrong with us is that we should bring our shame to the cross and experience the freedom and the power found in the gospel. And that is a comprehensive view of sin and restoration. John said it this way. You know this passage well in 1 John chapter 1, 8 through 10. He says that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. This is what Mabel's parents were doing. And the truth is not in them. John says the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... And this is where I'm talking about a comprehensive sin plan. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. We devoid the cross. We mock Christ and His word is not in us. That's an extrapolated paraphrase of 1 John 1, 8 through 10. All right, so let me, I want to roll through four, just four questions and then I will wrap up. Number one, describe how your parents experienced and explained sin when you were growing up as a a child. Do this kindly with humility, recognizing that you're not better than they are. I'm not better than my parents. And so, but it is important to think about your family of origin and how you were reared. And then the follow-up, as you describe how your parents experienced and explained sin, how did their worldview and their practice affect you? That's an important conversation. If you're married, that is really something that would be important to talk to talk about with your spouse. And if your children are old enough and mature enough and can handle this level of truth, it's time to talk to them as well. Number two, how has your experience and explanation of your sin? How does it affect those closest to you? And so now you are an adult and you have brought your shaping influences into your existence, into your current existence, your life with Christ and your life with other people. And so what have you brought into your relationships? How has your experience and how is your explanation for what is wrong with you? How does it affect those who are closest to you? Are you open? Are you honest? Are you vulnerable? Are you transparent? Are you humble? Are you redemptive or do you blame, justify, ignore, excuse? Number three, would you talk about these things with a close friend? If you're married, that person should be your spouse. If you have children, then it is essential. Like Biff and Mabel, they have to multitask now because their children are old enough, appropriate enough, mature enough that it's time to bring them into some of these conversations at some level. And so if you... Would, would you talk to a close friend? If you're married, would that be your spouse? And then number four, what changes do you need to make personally? What about your family? So there's personal changes for you, and then there's familial changes uh, as it works out in those who are closest to you. Again, I've titled this talk, um, The Wisdom of Induce." <laughs> The wisdom of introducing sin to our families. We got to talk about the obvious, 
We can't ignore the pink elephants that are running around the room. And because we are Christians, we have hope and we can have these conversations. Now, if there are more resources on our website, I I would love for you to take advantage of them. You can go to the article that I just shared with you, The Wisdom of Introducing Sin to Our Families, and you will find a lot of linkage a lot of hyperlinks that you can click on, and and you could spend six months in this one article. And if you want to do that, that would be a huge help for you. If you are a supporter of our ministry, then I want you to come to our private forums if you would like to talk. We have a private space just for you, for those of you who financially underwrite our ministry, and we'd love to serve you that way. And if I could make one final appeal... uh, The only reason we can give our resources away is because there are a few people who have the ability to underwrite what we do. And so if you have benefited from this ministry, if you appreciated what you have just uh, heard, uh, if you're able, only if you're able, would you either become a regular supporter on a monthly basis or an annual basis, or would you make a one-time gift to our ministry? By the grace of God, we're going to continue to give our stuff away but nothing is free. Uh, even our free salvation cost a lot. It cost a man his life. And so at the end of the day, nothing is free. Somebody is paying for it. And I want to release you from any guilt whatsoever. But there are some people who can underwrite. They believe in what we're doing. And, and they want to see the practical message of Christ. They want these types of resources to go far and wide and if you're able to support us financially would you consider that thank you so much and may god bless you have been listening to life over coffee with rick thomas if you have a question for rick you can let him know by sending him a note through his website rickthomas.net that's rickthomas.net thanks for listening enjoy your coffee